Welcome to the In Camera Review Podcast. Bienvenidos al podcast de la Cámara de la Revisión. Mike, Matt, and Logan, we are lawyers talking about movies and where the library is. Logan, donde esta biblioteca? Uh, no sé, yo no sé. This week we will be talking about a movie, an actor, and a year in film. This week's feature film is Mississippi Burning, picked by Matt. Uh, Robin Williams, my pick for the week. And Logan has selected for us and our viewing pleasure the 48th Academy Awards, looking at the 1975 year in film. The winner for Best Picture was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The also-rans that year were Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. Uh, I was able to get in Mississippi Burning a movie called The Final Cut, which I had never heard of, uh, but it's a Robin Williams flick from 2004, um, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I was really pleased that I was able to go back and rewatch because my, is it a good one. Logan, how about you? Big five. That's yeah, right. Big, big five. Uh, Mississippi Burning, Cuckoo's Nest, um, and then I did some Robin Williams homework. I did The Birdcage, which I had never seen, um, with Coleman's boy Gene Hackman. Goodwill Hunting and Hook. So you never seen the Birdcage? Uh, no, no, I'd never seen it. Did you like it? Yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very entertaining. It, you know, it's I very, don't think Nathan Lane, Nathan Lane, Hackman. yeah. Oh my, I, oh I don't my. think it's Robin Williams. We can talk about this. I don't think it's Robin Williams's best performance, but right, Nathan Lane and Gene Hackman, like there's some other great performances in there. Um, so. Matt, how you doing this week, my friend? I'm doing all right. You know, we got we got some work to do on the first segment. Um, a lot going on there. Gene Hackman. I'm afraid now that we picked this that I can't pick him as an actor for a long time because, boy, is he good. <laughs> boy, is he good. And then we got to talk about the legal issues in this. I don't know if you're going to dive into that. Willem Dafoe's career. I, I mean, I don't know if we're going to have time. I, we, we, I don't know. We're not, not going to have enough time to go to Home Depot and Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, <laughs> but we will get into it on the other side of the break, and we will roll through tonight's episode, starting with Mississippi Burning. I looked over at my daddy's face, and I knew he'd done it. He saw that I knew. He's shamed. I guess he was ashamed. He looked at me and he said, if you ain't better than a nigger, son, who are you better than? I think that's an excuse. No, it's not an excuse. It's a story about my daddy. Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe in 1988's Mississippi Burning, directed by Alan Parker. He was the director of Midnight Express, Angela's Ashes, and the Life of David Gale. In the wall, dude. In the wow. wall. I was going to the wall. Say, if, if you don't mention that, I'm going to, because we, we all know that's why Matt loves this movie so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in addition to Hackman and Defoe, it stars Frances McDormand. We've looked at her career and her uh, 
Academy Award nomination in this movie for Best Supporting Actress. Brad Dourif. Uh, we will wow. also talk about him in One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, is my guy. Arlie Ermey. Big time. You would know Arlie Ermey from the drill, drill instructor from Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Steven Toblowski, who you might know as Needle Nose Ned, Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day, the guy who comes up to Bill Murray on the street every day. Right. Remember me? Um, he's, I love Mississippi. <laughs> he's great in this movie out of nowhere. Um, Michael Rooker, Days of Thunder, JFK, Walking Dead, Guardians of the Galaxy. He knows how to play a southern asshole redneck like the best of them. Um, this movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It won for Best Cinematography. Uh, Hackman was nominated as well as McDormand as, and Parker was also nominated uh, and Sound and Best Film Edited. So this movie is loosely based uh, on the FBI investigation, uh, the actual FBI investigation that was codenamed Mississippi Burning. Uh, and that was an investigation into the murders of three civil rights workers in the summer of 1964 in Mississippi. Uh, those three uh, uh, freedom workers were pulled over by police. They were abducted, abducted beaten, and brutally murdered. Uh, and then they were dumped in an earthen dam. Uh, this follows uh, that story uh, fairly closely when it comes to the, those big things. Uh, the car was found three days after they were murdered. Um, they really did send in 400 United States Navy sailors to go search for the bodies. Um, they did get a tip to the body's location uh, 44 days after the murder, but it did not come uh, from the source in the movie. It came from a guy who worked at the Highway Patrol in Mississippi. Um, there were nine people ultimately involved in the planning and execution of these murders. Um, this movie does a pretty good job of displaying the uh, sort of rift in the FBI between the Hoover guys and the Bobby Kennedy guys. Um, um, Hoover ordered the investigation, but Bobby Kennedy, not Willem Dafoe, uh, was the one who sent 150 agents in from the New Orleans office uh, to go uh, work on this one case, which was a national uh, Fuhrer uh, at the time. Um, it is, there's a lot in this movie. Uh, it's well done. Uh, it's a good pick. Um, Matt, tell us a little bit more about Mississippi Burning. Excellent movie. When I was in college, I first watched this movie. So it was about 10 years after it had come out. And just that scene that you played, um, I, I remember when I was watching it, really enjoying Willem Dafoe's performance. And that was just because I didn't know who he was. At that, by, by the time I, I had seen that movie in 1999, 2000, you know, Gene Hackman was already very high in, in, on my radar. You know, he was already in, in Hoosiers, okay? Um, you know, Unforgiven, those types of movies, uh, Superman, I'd, I'd seen all those. So Willem Dafoe was new to me and I really enjoyed his performance in it. And I enjoyed a lot of the, um, the, the uh, supporting actors, Kevin Don, Bradley Dorif, um, who's our boy Jigsaw, uh, Tobin to Bell. Tobin Bell. 
Right. So I thought, you know, Francis McDormand, I thought there were great performances. Whoever played the sheriff was great. Oh, great. yeah. Like he's, the, said, he's Kathy Bates's husband in Fried Green Tomatoes. Correct. I mean, those guys, they, they all brought it. Now, were they, were they flexing their acting muscles? Maybe not, but who cares? It was good. Um, great you, forgot, you forgot to mention Irvin Burrell. Yeah, no, from, I did not. From The, from the Wire. Uh, very good, Logan. Very, very good. Um, you know, just it, it was, that's why I picked it. it and um, rewatching it and have not, having not seen Gene Hackman in a film since 2004, boy, do I miss that guy. Holy shit, was that performance amazing. And then I, 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 I pull up the 1989 Academy Awards and see Dustin Hoffman wins for Rain Man. And, and I know he played a difficult role, a, a, a person, is it autism, I believe? It, it, and I'm, I'm, was, I'm sure it was difficult, but I'm sure the Academy gave, gave it to him for taking that on because they just love shit like that. Um, whereas the role that... Gene Hackman played in Mississippi Burning was was maybe one of the most unique roles I've ever seen a person play. I like the way that you put that as it's a unique role in the way that he played it because on the surface, this is a buddy cop uh, movie that does deals with a lot of familiar tropes uh, in, um, in 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 cop movies. Um, you know, Defoe wants to follow the rules and, you know, uh, Hackman wants to break him. And, you know, this is, I mean, this is not too far off from the French connection. Right. I mean, this is, right. these are, these are familiar uh, things, but they, they take this and they do something very different with it. And I think it starts with Hackman's ability to make that role more robust than probably it was on paper. Uh, he had some, uh, you know, he's, he's a Mississippi sheriff who then works for the FBI. And so he's got this, you know, this, he's not conflicted at all, uh, right. but, he's, but he's got right. this, he's, he's very charming and he understands uh, the people that they're around and that they're investigating. But then he's also super hard nosed and willing to do whatever it takes uh, to go out and get justice, including breaking the same laws that these guys broke uh, right. in order to make the case. So, I, and he just plays it. I just think flawlessly. It's one of his best performances, if not the best performance he's ever given huge fan of Hackman in this movie. Defoe, I think, at least contemporary at the time, I agree with the contemporary take on the time, which was before this, Defoe was known for Platoon. And after this movie, Defoe's known for Mississippi Burning. He, he stands on his own two legs, you know, goes from supporting to a, to a lead, and he, he establishes himself in this movie. Logan, what'd you think of the flick? Yeah, I mean, you, you generally take the words out of my mouth I, the the scene for me in particular where hackman i think just knocks it out of the park is the opening scene when he's singing the ku klux klan mm -hmm. the, uh, to defoe in the car and you you don't really know the characters yet and yet you're just enthralled by hackman's performance already just his posture his posture and, and right. everything and his his chuckle and and stuff like that i think defoe was really good in it for i would say that he stands out in the first third of the movie and then hackman really just kind of steals the show right he does. and and that's part of it's not it's not that defoe does a bad job in the second half of the movie it's just that his character is less 
um, important, I guess, in the storyline, and and Hackman plays a bigger role. Hack, yeah. Hackman's the lead. Hackman's yeah, the yeah. lead. Well, and, and and Defoe has to stand outside the barbershop wanting to get in, while Hackman is putting a razor to the deputy right. sheriff's face in the barber seat. Right. 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 Um, Frances McDormand blew me away um, with how good she was and how um, different she looks as a, as a uh, young actress. Uh, I thought she was fantastic. That um, scene when she's holding the baby, like yeah. she's uh, that was it was excellent, excellent. So yeah, uh, it's a five star movie for me. I was Whoa! I was blown away when I went back. I, my Matt, I love the pick because when I went back and watched it, you know, I I was a little hesitant to just to put it on and to begin with because. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, 12, year, 12 Years a Slave and with all the racial stuff going on in the world today. And like, it's just, it's a lot of heavy material, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm so glad that I did. It's a fantastic movie. I think it's aged like a fine wine. Um, I, you know, I brought up the, the Irv Burrell uh, from The Wire, Colesbury from the wire is also in it as or or was a part of it i think he's a cameraman or something like that right um and and it's it's crazy to think that in the late 80s right these guys were um working together and then you know many many years later they they collaborate on the wire um so this this is a five-star movie for me as well um one of the things that i appreciate about this movie is that it tells a very difficult story that happened over a long period of time, there's um, there's a, a lot of buildup to what was going on before 1964 that summer, what happened that summer, uh, and then the investigation and the trials, and it's a lot. And um, that's a that's a big uh, piece to bite off of. Logan, as you've talked about, doing true stories is always more difficult than doing fictional ones because it's not convenient. Um, they I think did the best that they could with the fact that the people who committed these murders were still alive and not everything was out. There was a prosecution that happened, I think in, in 2006, I think maybe of uh, right. Of, of, of basically the guy who's played by uh, needle nose Ned um, who got convicted in Mississippi state court of, uh, of murder, or maybe it was manslaughter. Uh, He basically got a life sentence and, um, but so there were all of these things going along. So they really were a little bit hamstrung by the fact that it was, you know, you're, you're, you're still just like 25 years or so uh, away from the, the events that happened. Um, and, and you can't also defame a lot of the people who are alive. And most of these people these days are, are dead. So it'd be, it'd be a different uh, issue because you can't defame a dead person. Um, the legal issues in this movie that we kind of were, were talking about a little bit, um, they, one of the things I think that's a little confusing about the movie is they keep talking about civil rights violations. And most people I think would think that that is the civil rights act that was passed after the events of this movie happened. Um, but there's uh, the, the law is title 18 United States code section 242, which dates back to the forties. And that's different from the civil rights act that was signed into law by Lyndon Johnson Um this law 242 that's the violation the willful violation of somebody's civil rights under color of state law so the most common time you see that uh that that's a criminal statute right so 
this would be, for example, uh, when Rodney King was beaten uh, during the LA riots, all four of those officers that did that were charged criminally with willful violation of Rodney King's civil rights under color of law. Um, And so uh, it's a 10 year penalty that they could have gotten. Uh, Those guys were acquitted. In this case, they were not. Um, Just about everybody got damn near 10 years that was involved in the murder, um, either the planning or the execution of it, unless they cooperated, in which case they got a lesser sentence, but still, you know, 10 years for brutal murders of three uh, people was still not enough, which is why they continued to, to try to pursue the case, which, you know, I think, like I said, hamstrung the movie just a little bit. Um, but it, it, it takes all of that and it still does a great job with great performances. Um, it, it's, it's a heavy lift for it to do it. Um, and I think I, I, it's, it's when you look at all of these movies, that look back on the civil rights era with their retrospective, this one's at the top of the list. It's better than, you know, Ghost of Mississippi um, or any of those movies from the 80s and 90s that uh, look back. So I give it four. Belgium. I give it I give it four. And, and Whoa. right. And the reason why is because it, it opened the door for some of that crap. Um, it was a little long and there just seemed to be kind of a lot of montages of burning churches just a little lengthy um with like you know gospel music in the background and i I think it could have been done once i don't think it needed to needed to have been done three times and um yeah but they didn't use a narrator yeah see i thought i thought i was being a little nitpicky when to your point man it gets a little long in that there's this there's several like events that happen between when defoe will finally lets gene hackman off the leash essentially correct right Right. and i only one of them was really necessary but they just keep there's this more and more sort of racial violence that we have to that we have to watch and go through and they could have probably cut some of that stuff out, but um, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that it's not a five star for you. Yeah, I and, and I'm not being nitpicky. I'm just it it got long. It did. I mean, the performances are top notch. They're five star performances. Um, some of the decisions made by the director have to be taken into consideration. You know, one of the things I really liked about it is at times when they had the media out there, they filmed it in in like a documentary style i thought that was extremely well done oh yeah Um, those interviews were great i i think there could have been more of that i think that you know movie had style again this is a guy that directed the wall um you know but it the 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 length of it and the um you know montages i mean you could have you could have chopped could have chopped 25 minutes off that movie Right. Yeah. So, well, the, I mean, we we did tell you we talk about all these and put them under under the microscope. I generally think that about almost everything. Taylor, Taylor Sheridan. Because we're getting the, older. It's because we're getting they, older now, and, and we can't stay up for <laughs> for three two and a half hour anymore. movies. Yeah. We can't no, and, it, and it does it does meander, right? I mean, it, yeah. it 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 does have some difficulty with that, which I, I just attributed to the fact that it's a very difficult story to tell, and I I also just appreciate the fact that the the position that they're in where they can't really tell the whole story. Um, so I, I, you know, the, it's as best 
it's a five-star movie under the circumstances. You remake this movie today, it's going to be better. For sure. For sure. I mean, here's my question, Mike. In, in reality, ballpark, what was the length of this investigation? I mean, so it took, it did take him 44 days from the time that the, uh, um, that the murders happened to when they found the bodies. Oh, so it was that short. Right. I, I was under the impression, uh, you can make a leap that this took years to do, right? Because, right. You, you know, you would think that it would take years to mobilize, go from two agents to the entire Navy, right? So, I mean, you, you would think that would take a while. Uh, it, so if it was years, I would want to have seen some aging, some difference in, in, in characters at that point. But if you're saying this whole thing is, you know, 45 days, that makes sense. Yeah, because it was the summer of 1964, you know, among other things. But this was a daily story. And so it was they found this. They talked to this person. And it was just okay. Right. Um, and so it was, it was national news. I mean, uh, Lyndon Johnson had um, the, the family members of the victims in the Oval Office that summer. Um, wow. I mean, things are, things are moving fast. Um, and Hoover is hardcore on this. And Bobby Kennedy is the Attorney General, and he's hardcore on it. Um, and so you had the, the full weight of the federal government behind this, this one case, which is uh, extraordinary. So, I mean, Gene Hackman almost wills this movie to five but he just he can't he can't cross the the goal line i'm sh i'm just shocked by this yeah i i want to take i want to take a, a a much closer look at these boys career i really want to put the 1989 academy awards um under the microscope and see what happened there because i, I don't think i don't think gene hackman should have lost that Pretty sure Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman were like roommates back in the day too. So that no, I'm 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 not joking. I'm not joking. I think they were. So it you know, good year for those two. They're pals. God bless them. But I mean, let's leave it with this. How much do you miss Gene Hackman? Dude is fucking ninety. Ninety years old. Ninety. Miss him every day. He, he Hasn't up, been tough. Hasn't been in a movie. Last movie he was in was Welcome to Mooseport. Movie he was in before that was Royal Tenenbaums. He was so funny. That guy could that guy could do comedy, like we're about to talk about in the Birdcage. I mean, you know, I miss I miss Gene Hackman, but he's ninety. I can't make him work anymore. <laughs> well, I definitely miss uh, miss Robin Williams as well, um, and so we will be talking about him on the other side of the break as well as the many characters that he has played, including Euphigenia Doubtfire Deity. We'll see you on the other side of the break. Well, you're, you're, you know what, Jerry? Shove the metal up your fucking ass, all right? Because I don't give a shit about your metal, because I knew you before you were a mathematical god. When you were pimple-faced and homesick and didn't know what side of the bed to piss on. Yeah, you were smarter than me then, and you're smarter than me now, so don't blame me for how your life turned out. It's not my fault. I don't blame you! It's not about you, you mathematical dick! It's about the boy! He's a good kid, and I won't see you fuck him up like you're trying to fuck up me right now. I won't see you make him feel like a failure, too. He won't be a failure, Sean! But, but if you push him, Jerry, if you lie him... Robin Williams in his Academy Award winning performance in Goodwill Hunting from 1997. 
Robin Williams has been called by some the best comedian of all time. We'll discuss whether there's some truth to that. Um, some little background on uh, Robin Williams. He got a full scholarship to Juilliard. Um, his classmates at that time, uh, Lo, or Matt, you were just talking about Hackman and Hoffman. Uh, Williams goes back to uh, William Hurt and Mandy Patinkin uh, as classmates. Oh, wow. Good Julia. contemporaries. That's like, it's like Mike and Logan and Matt. I wonder if they were in a study group together. <laughs> um, Mandy <anyway>. P. <laughs> Good. Uh, so the, uh, in his junior year at Juilliard, uh, Robin Williams dropped out to do stand-up comedy in 1976. Um, he has a, uh, a role in his first film debut. He played a lawyer in uh, 1977 called Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses. Um, he, of course, played the widely popular uh, and hugely successful role in Mork and Mindy, um, the TV show from 1978 to 1982, won tons of awards for that. Uh, his musical or his uh, movie career uh, is in 1980 with Popeye. Uh, that was directed by Robert Altman. Robert Altman. Right. Uh, the World According to Garp in 82. And in 87, he is in a Barry Levinson movie called Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, for that movie, he was nominated for Best Actor. He lost to Michael Douglas for Wall Street. Um, he had a little small role in the 1988 movie, The Adventures of Baron von Munchausen, which I love that movie. I watched it as a kid. He plays the King of the Moon. It's a Terry Gilliam movie, and it's just great. And Williams is the only thing wrong with it is there's not enough Robin Williams in it. Um, he does Dead Poets Society, where he's also nominated for Best Actor, uh, who he, of course, lost to Daniel Day-Lewis for my left foot that year. Um, he does a number of movies. Um, I remember going to see in 1990 Awakenings in the theaters with Robin Williams and uh, Robert De Niro, where De Niro plays a, uh, a guy that has a, a degenerative disease um, and makes him catatonic. And then um, Williams's character, Dr. Malcolm Sayer, it based on, it's based on a true story. Um, uses this experimental medication and all these people come out from their, their catatonia and live again, but then they, all, they end up going back and have these awakenings. And he and De Niro are sensational in it. And it's a talk about a movie that tugs on your heartstrings. So even though he's doing great comedy and stand up and known for that, he's also doing these very good dramatic performances and some of these early very, on, early, early on. on. And, yeah. and, and that was something I didn't pick up on until we did this exercise. I, you know, and I think I, I felt the same way when I looked at it and I thought, you know what, it's because when, when we remember Robin Williams as kids, we remember him from Hook and Aladdin and Mrs. Doubtfire. And I'm Jumanji. a little older. I'm a little older. So, I mean, Mork and Mindy was on TV. I mean, I'm. Uh, so you were not, 10 years old in 1978. Is that right? No, no. <laughs> I watched it on Nick at too. I, I know. I, yes. And I did too. Um, but we always saw him as a comedy actor, um, even though I don't think that's right, because, I mean, he was nominated for, for Best Actor in 1991 for The Fisher King, another Terry Gilliam movie. Um, he lost to Anthony Hopkins uh, that year, who was in For Silence of the Lambs. But those movies that I just mentioned, I mean, those are the movies that we grew up on with Robin Williams. Uh, these are hugely successful movies coming out every year in the 90s. Butts um, and Seats. 
butts in the seats. Right, blockbuster summer movies, doing uh, voices and doing characters. Um, you know, I mean, I remember in '95, Jumanji was like the best special effects and like awesome movie I'd ever seen. It For does sure. not hold. It does not hold up <laughs> at all. Which is why they remade it. I'm sure. Um, the Birdcage in '96. That's directed by Mike Nichols. Um, that's a great movie, and he's great in it. Everybody's great in that movie. That's just a phenomenal movie. Yeah. He's. Uh, it's just. It's. I don't think it was one of his best performances. He's great mm-hmm. in it. I, I. But there are other other people outshine him. Sure. Uh, like you, Mike. Oh, I, you know, a lot Nathan of those. Lane. A lot of those movies that you mentioned that that he's known for, like Hook and Mrs. Doubtfire and stuff. That's what I grew up with him as as a comedic actor you know, who, who plays this woman, right. And, and, and an old woman to that to boot. Right. And so that's kind of the way I think about him, but then you, you know, we're going through the list at some point he gets the goodwill hunting. Right. And this, the clip he played, uh, the guy had range. There's no doubt about that. He had talent, um, from all sides. He, he could do anything. It was a run by fruiting. I saw the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, he does. Do... He, Go ahead, Matt. I don't know if he had. I feel like he was so funny that the sheer shock of him doing a dramatic role, even though he had done it on a numerous occasions, was just enough for people to say, "Can you believe he was able to dial it back for ninety minutes?" Right? right. I mean, because right. he was. He, I mean, he's. He wasn't a psycho, but I mean, he was. He was. Uh, at, at an 11 out of 10 at all times. I mean, I had sent you guys that that Golden Globe acceptance speech. Did you guys watch that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. For the Fisher you- King. And he just, and, and I remember when I was younger watching those interviews, he, w- he just would never stop. He, he was so funny. That was so funny. And he had everybody in stitches. And I think he was just beloved because he could do that and that's why he got so many nods. Now, to be fair, his performances are pretty good, right? You know, he deservedly lost to every single person he was up against, right? So it's not like, you know, he's like Carl Malone at that point. I mean, he's up against Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. He's up against Michael Douglas in Wall Street. I mean, he should not have won for those, you know. Anthony he, Hopkins as well. And Anthony yeah. Hopkins, right? So... I mean, what are you going to do? So, uh, so the interesting thing about that is, is when he wins for good, good, uh, goodwill hunting, he beats Hopkins for Amistad. Mm-hmm. He beats Greg Kinnear for as good as it gets. Burt Reynolds for boogie nights and Robert Forster for Jackie Brown. Right. Um, you know, uh, beating Hopkins is very good. Right. I mean, uh, clearly and, and, and Amistad's a great movie and I don't want to take anything away from that, but that's not as difficult as a competition he's had before. Right. 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 No doubt. No doubt. And so I, I give props to the directors that to your point, Matt, that could control that guy and get him to film the scenes because, because of exactly what you're talking about. If you ever saw him in any interview or press or anything like that, his personality would come out like that and, and you would just see this sort of off the wall, extremely entertaining, funny, charismatic person who's just all over the place. 
And I, I'm shocked generally at, at the, that the directors in, especially in dramatic roles, were able to sort of, you know, bring him back and hone him in and, and, and get him to focus on, on playing just one character. At and they got, they got the performances out of him, man. They really yep. did. They really did. You know, um, when I, when I look back and see some of the things, I see a lot of anxiety, like, you know, even in that golden globe speech, I mean, you see a, a desire to please and make people laugh that just overtakes his entire body. And, um, you know, it, it looks almost painful. And so, well, he's struggled a lot with addiction too. I mean, he was addicted to cocaine and he's an, he was a lifelong alcoholic. Right. Right. And you know, those are demons. These are, like I said, like we say all the time on the show, these are real people, man. These are real people that have to, have to deal with this and and go to work in, in in a different environment and they go home to their wives. And, and that was my point. I think he self-medicated. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it, it, to, to deal with that underlying anxiety, you know, and it's, it, it, you could see the difference between when he accepted the, the golden globe for um, the Fisher King to when he won the, the Academy award that he, he seemed to have had some of those demons temporarily and everything comes in ebbs and flows that we talk about, you know, and he, he seemed to have a, a control on that at that time. Um, well, so interestingly Sad. enough about him after the, uh, after he won his, his Oscar, his, uh, his career kind of has some ups and downs. Um, what dreams may come, not critically acclaimed, not a box office success. I personally like that movie a lot. I think it's interesting. I think he's it, good in it. It was a good pick. It, it didn't, it didn't hit it out of the park, but I, the idea and the intention was good in my sure. opinion. Um, you know, and if you're, you know, it's, I guess it's sort of what's on the other side of the ninth gate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, He does Patch Adams. He does Jacob the Liar. Um, I remember when One Hour Photo came out, which was his darkest role. Um, Decent, decent movie. Decent movie. Yeah. And, and, and he, and he pulls it off. I just remember not being able to reconcile the cognitive dissonance in my head about Robin Williams at that time uh, and seeing him as my childhood, you know, icon uh, in my, sure. these movies I love to uh, serial killer, you know, it just, um, and I, and I think that, you know, like we said, even though he's, I mean, the guy's been nominated uh, for four Oscars. Four times, right? Four and he, times. And took home the gold once. And we're still talking about whether the guy can do drama. Right. right. Those are not comedic roles that he's in. Not, not one, not one. Right. And, and here's a question for you two. What is the difference between him and Jim Carrey? So in my opinion, I think that uh, Jim Carrey is more one dimensional than Robin Williams when it comes to comedy. I think that Jim Carrey is, has sort of that general, physicality that we know from him that's it's almost like an actor mannerism the way he is with his physicality whereas robin williams that guy is 360 degrees of physicality i don't know that there's a better physical actor out there maybe other than i mean maybe daniel day lewis daniel day lewis right yeah. but the, but mm-hmm. the phys the his 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 awareness um of his motion is amazing uh and then also um his comedy is i think uh, uh much more layered 
um, and um, subtle um, and not like Jim Carrey's that sort of beats you over the head with it. And then, and, and I mean, that's it. Look, I like Jim Carrey. I even like Jim Carrey in his bad movies, like the number 23. Um, but Robin Williams has way more depth when it comes to drama. I mean, you could not put Jim Carrey um, in that role of uh, uh, in Goodwill Hunting. He, no, I, man. I, I, I think, think he could do it. you couldn't do it in that role, but I don't particularly think that Robin Williams pulled off being like some Boston guy. You know, oh, shove it up I, your fucking ass! <laughs> right, I, I I didn't think it was there. I think they gave it to him because it was an he he was owed one. But I mean, you know, Jim Carrey has been in the Truman Show, not nominated. The Man in the Moon, not nominated. That's a travesty. Um, I agree with you there. And, and oddly enough, not that's even a movie. nominated, man. I mean, and that's that's a movie directed by Milos Forman, who uh, directed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. So, I mean, I think they're, I think politics, I think what I'm getting at is that Robin Williams made people laugh off, uh, you know, off the air and was such a, a pleaser of people that people wanted to give him awards. They wanted to keep, I mean, he was nominated almost like back to back to back and he was winning winning golden globes. Like it was his fucking job. So, but, but Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, Ain't got shit to the point where I think he's gone off the rails because of it. I don't do. Do I think he compares himself to Robin Williams? I, I hope not. Um, well, well, let me ask you this because this this would this answers the question in my opinion in a different way. Is Robin Williams the most versatile actor there is, or was? More than Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis cannot do comedy. Yeah. Well, uh, we don't know because he's never done it, right? Well, but, I mean, he might have been one hell of a funny though. shoemaker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, funny. Yeah. His cabinets are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't. I don't have to think about the 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 range question, and you know, because we've talked about that at on, on right? right. We talked about like guys like Wahlberg who are better at that that little that niche of comedy, dramedy, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and some people that are better suited for comedy, better suited for drama. We, we've talked about in passing Alec Baldwin and some of these other folks that um, really weigh one side or the other. I, I don't think you can say that there's another actor who is better at comedy than he is, who's been able to have a successful film career. There may be, depending on your taste, stand-up comics that you could say are funnier, but not in film, not anybody that has this kind of catalog on the comedy uh, side. If you, if you listen or if you guys haven't heard his, his bit on, on the origination of golf. That, that uh, entire HBO special, yeah, Logan, it's but, 90 minutes long. <laughs> and and the, golf, the golf bit is, it, bit is the opening number. Yeah. And you're a hundred percent right. It, he, I mean, to be that talented to do that, do com- comedic films and then be nominated for you know best actor awards and dramedies uh, you might be right exactly man. mike it just you know i don't that's know a, that there's that many people that have that much range for sure that, that's a great point i never would have thought about it just because because i don't value him as as that is anywhere in the top 10 dramatic actors or top whatever i wouldn't well, have him up there and but, what i really he's what, not in he's not incompetent at it he's serviceable at it 
to the point where he's been nominated four times for it. You can't discount him. And you know he's the king on the comedy side. So, yeah, you might be right. Well, I, and here's the other thing. You blindsided me I, like you do all the time on this show. So, I mean. Well, here's one that I know you'll like. And, I, and I'll say this, because it's not just a spectrum of on you know comedy and drama and the other. There, there are some other different um, layers to it, I think. And I think the one of the things that showcases his perfect ability to do both comma, comedy and drama at the same time is 2002's Death to Smoochie when he plays Rainbow Randolph. Big time. He's, he's Big fantastic time. in that movie. He's mm-hmm. dark. He's funny. He's mm-hmm. dramatic. It's, I mean, it's, it's a, the only problem, like I say, it, it's just, it, it's, there's not enough of Rainbow Randolph in that movie. Um, but he does it all, and it, it, it's a shame he wasn't nominated for that. Do you guys like that Safari clip I yes. sent you right before the show? Exactly, <laughs> which is why I knew you'd like that. But, you know, you throw that in there, that's, a, that's another dimension to the guy's ability. And, I, and I, th- I think the thing is about him is that, the, you know, he was able to fill whatever space he had with the work. Uh, he just had that ability. He had the natural talents of the voice. He had the natural physical. I mean, these are these are just talents that he had. Yeah, um, I don't know if there was right? a lot of work behind it. I mean, he right. he just had it. It was just uh, a natural for all of it. Yeah, we were just talking about his bit on golf. I I he's for, he's like Bubba Watson. It's just natural talent, right? Bubba Watson is a golfer. He's never had a golf lesson in his entire life. He's won major championships, right? The dude can do anything with a golf club. Robin Williams could literally do anything when it came to acting or, you know, making people laugh. He just had so many diverse characters and, you know, it's just his personality. Um, yeah. I, I, to me, him and Jim Carrey, I don't know that Jim Carrey has enough uh, um, on the dramatic side to get, to get to that level, but I, he's not that far off. I mean, you know, Jim, Jim could do some, he, you know, he's doing the Dr. Seuss stuff and, you know, things like that. I think Jim's, I think Jim's done, dude. Yeah. I think he, I think he's, he's, he's done. And, and, you know, without, without getting too into it, but we, we like to point out how they're regular people, how they are people. Um, if there's anything that's been positive in the last 20 years, it's just that there's been a light shed upon mental health mm-hmm. and, you know, um, you know, it, Mike sent the article about Robin Williams's diagnosis prior to, you know, his taking his life. But I mean, um, th- these people battle, man. We all battle. It, there's there's good days and bads, and you know, we just we just do the best we can and and go to work. And this was a guy with a ton of talent, and he he's gone too soon. I couldn't believe it was August eleventh, two thousand fourteen, that he died. It just feels Jesus. like it. It feels like it was just yesterday, um, but that article um, that we were looking at about Louis Louis body disease, uh, form mm-hmm. of dementia, um, mm-hmm. it's, it sounds to me like that was uh, pretty much the cause of uh, of his major depression. Um, didn't, and they didn't know that he had it until after he died. Correct. Um, they, they had misdiagnosed him with other things. Right. Um, it's it's easy to sit, say you know, the guy was an alcoholic and a drug addict and just say he's depressed because of that. Right. It's real easy to say that. No, I mean, maybe, maybe it's both, you know, when you say that somebody, you know, committed suicide and they had, you know, major depression, it's, it's like somebody had cancer and they died. I mean, suicide Mm -hmm. is caused by that. And it's, it's, 
it's, it's part of the illness and, um, and it's, uh, it's, unfortunately it's changed a lot. The light being shined on men, mental illness. Right. People, people, get, people understand that that's, that's a presentation of the, of the diagnosis now. And it's, it, it, and I'm glad. And, and, and it, people are taking care of themselves now or, or, or they, they know that it's, it's a part of their body that they need to take care of. I don't want to get on a high horse about it or, or anything. It's just, I'm, I'm glad, no, I'm glad. It's a, it, it's a great that, transition to where we're going. Cause we're going to be talking about mental illness next with one floor of the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. That's why I did it. <laughs> we'll see you on the other side of the break. Well done, Matt. <laughs> Jack Nicholson in his Academy Award winning performance for Best Actor in 1975. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, directed by Milos Forman. Of course, the director of Man on the Moon, as we mentioned, but also The People versus Larry Flint and Amadeus. One Flew Over the Man, Cuckoo's Nest. I don't Nest. follow that guy's career at all. You mean, mean still- you're not aware of it or just like it's a, it's a strange trajectory? The fact that you just told me that that guy did all of those movies, I, I, <laughs> I feel like I should have been more aware of him. Yeah, I mean, well, he spans he spans uh, a, a long time period, right? I mean, he's a he he's Czech, and uh, a lot of this movie that he did was he wanted to do this because it it was um, part of you know growing up in um, in communist uh, Czechoslovakia and. Uh, you know, he viewed the psychiatric hospital, you know, Nurse Ratchet as like the Communist Party there. So uh, he's been around for been around for a lot of a long time, uh, did a lot of different types of things. But yeah, I mean, Carrie, Jim Carrey working with him on Man of the Moon, and then he puts this effort into it, does this great performance, Andy Kaufman, not to get way off track. But I mean, the guy not being nominated was stupid. I mean, it was it was it was the mother of all snubs. And I don't think he ever recovered. He had to have. I don't think he did either. I, I think I think that set him off for the rest of his life. Nine nominations and five wins for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, as Matt mentioned, along with Silence of the Lambs. And it happened one night. It won the big five. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Jack Nicholson, Best Actress uh, for uh, Louise Fletcher, who played Nurse Ratched, um, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It is based on the 1962 novel by Ken Kesey. Um, Matt, you will appreciate the fact that the author uh, was involved in the CIA's MK Ultra LSD program. Right. You know what? I was supposed to bring that up a little bit more on the last episode. Damn it. <laughs> um, and didn't know it at the time. And uh, so he obviously had a lot of mental health issues uh, uh, also relating to LSD use. Um in addition to the actors I mentioned, uh, Christopher Lloyd, Brad Dorff, who we mentioned from uh, Mississippi Burning, and Scatman Carruthers has a great Danny role DeVito. in this. 
Danny and, DeVito. And, and Danny DeVito, who, interestingly enough, he was the first actor to be cast in this movie because his best friend is Michael, Michael Douglas. Douglas, who was making it, right? He was the producer because his dad, Kirk Douglas, used to play Jack Nicholson's character, McMurphy, on the Broadway stage version of this, liked it so much, wanted to, uh, he bought the rights and wanted to play McMurphy on the movie, couldn't get it made. So he gave the rights to Michael Douglas and, uh, and he took it off from there. Um, they shot on location in Oregon in a real. Michael Douglas got this movie because his daddy gave it to him. Yeah, Are you serious? This just ruined. Matt, Matt just ruined. flew over this. Matt just flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like right now you're witnessing it right here. No, I feel like I feel like the scene from No Country for Old Men when when he says you you married into this gas station. I I, I was I remember being so impressed, thinking that Michael Douglas is a young actor, produced this fucking movie and his dad gave it to him. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean technically just, sold it to him. I don't know how much for, but uh, oh, yeah. okay. 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 He sold it to his, but yeah, you're right. He gave it to him. Um, the movie is about a repeat, uh, offender, uh, who's sent from prison to a psychotic ward, uh, for evaluation. He challenges, uh, the wards, uh, nurse ratchet, and he rebels against, uh, her and the hospital's rules. Um, I mean, he's faking to avoid real jail time. Correct. Right. Right. Big difference. Yeah, so he's faking to avoid it, but he actually does have mental health issues, right? And that's the subtlety of the movie is that he's he's not crazy, but he does have mental health issues, but they deal with it in like like he's suffering from a severe psychotic disorder. That's how they treat him. He doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't have any business being in the hospital like that. Right. And and in the same way, you know, at the one of the most tragic and just I mean, if, you, if you've never seen the movie and you watch it for the first time, just breathtaking endings where he comes back after this, you know, uh, this penultimate scene where they have this big party um, in the hospital and he, he comes back from it. And the chief uh, who is in the clip at the top is going to he and McMurphy are going to escape from the hospital. But he comes back and he's been lobotomized. Right. Um, and so the chief uh, euthanizes him, knowing that McMurphy would not want to live the rest of his life that way. Um, in the hospital and then he um, you know very uh, dramatically breaks through the window and 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 leaves Um, there's there's a few scenes in this movie that give you kind of goosebumps when Bradley Dorif stops speaking with a stutter yeah and then and then she just sadistically you know to, to to, to, to watch him go back there you know, right. it, it, it was that, that it was a really powerful scene. I mean, Bradley Dorff, who, if we didn't, if we did not sing his praises enough in, in the first segment, he, he is one of my favorite actors. I, I, I love him in Deadwood. I love that he likes to do a lot of horror movies too. I mean, right. it, it, you know, he's, he's worm tongue in uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, guy, guy is a worker, a worker that a lot of people don't know. And he was, was he nominated for that? He was, yes, he was nominated for best supporting actor for that, for that role. Um, he did not win. I believe he lost to 
I think it was maybe George Burns for um, for the movie he and Walter Matthau did that year, The Sunshine oh, so Boys. Michael had uh, Michael had uh, let his dad's friend George Burns win win the Academy Award that year because his daddy gave him the the movie to make. <laughs> I, I get it. We all make compromises in life, right? What a well, fucking joke! Are you well, kidding it, me? Okay, well, let's go talk about the other movies, the also-rans. Uh, Barry Lyndon was directed by Stanley Kubrick. It was uh, seven nominations at four wins. Uh, it won for Best Scoring Adaptation um, and Best Costume uh, and Cinematography and Art Direction. Barry Lyndon is like a, it's like a moving painting. It's a, it's beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. It, it did things with lighting that no one had ever done in film. Um, and essentially the, the problem with Barry Lyndon is it was supposed to be about Napoleon Bonaparte. And he, you know, if you know anything about Kubrick, he spends, he's, he's like the Daniel day Lewis of directing. He spends years researching and preparing uh, these movies and then doesn't do them for a long time. Um, and so he was working on Napoleon for a long time and was getting ready to do it. And he, he, he got infamous or Wyatt Earped or Tombstone, whatever you want to call it. Somebody else made Scooped. a movie. Scooped. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Um, and uh, so they, so he just had all this shit lying around about, you know, about 17th century warfare and things like that. And, and, and the aristocracy of, uh, of Europe. And so he just made a movie about, uh, about that time period and a really good period piece. And he had all of the, really interesting things that they were not doing in the seventies. And so it's a, it's a great movie. It's boring as all get out, I mean, but it's a, it's a, like a walk through the Louvre, you know, um, right. so you got to have a cup of coffee when you're, when you watch Barry Lyndon, but it's, it's great. And it deserved every nomination uh, there. And um, it deserves a watch everybody. It does. It, it does. It, you're not gonna, you're not gonna say that that was a great movie, but it, it just, it does deserve it. You can watch it in segments and do it during the day with a cup of coffee. Just do it. You'll like it. And this is, look, and this is a strong year, which I think is one of the reasons why you picked it, Logan. Um, Sidney Lament, uh, who directed 12 Angry Men and The Verdict, among many, many other movies, did Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino. Uh, that was given six nominations at one for Best Original Screenplay. It's a fantastic movie. Um, and uh, Pacino's great in it. And um, it's it's very well directed. These are all very good movies. And then, of course, Jaws, uh, directed by Spielberg with four nominations and three wins. Um, Jaws is a is a classic uh, unto itself. I mean, it's top call, 10 movie, top 10 movie. Right. I mean, to call it a, to call it a monster movie is an insult. Right. I mean, it's uh, the, the movie is uh, is unbelievable. And then you have the suspense and uh, Jaws is out of I mean, there's not you can't yeah. compare it to anything. I was going to say the the scene in the boat where they talk about delivering the bomb. I mean, is just right. I don't know that there's a better scene in in movie history that I can think of off the top of my head right there. Other than he that wrote scene. that he wrote that right. Yeah. Um, so the I, I mean that's that scene in particular um, uh, is better than anything in any of these movies, right? Like it, it's better than everything in Cuckoo's Nest. The only thing in Cuckoo's Nest that I think. Whoa. That that gets close to that one scene in Jaws is, to me anyway, is the baseball scene when Nicholson sits down in front of the blank television and starts to narrate the game, and the entire group of them come over 
and like Danny DeVito is like running around giggling and like just that scene in Cuckoo's Nest it, it's it's a it's an incredible scene but then when you compare it to the Jaws scene oh man uh it's tough I, the that Jaws scene in in the boat is <laughs> uh like you said Mike uh, uh, top 10 movies of all time scenes maybe Jaws is the better movie yeah, I think One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a better movie. I, I, lo- I love Jaws. Um, and I just think that, first of all, I think it's apples and oranges when you're, when you're trying to compare these two. They're very yeah, different. You're, you're They're very different. You isolate our, our, some of our listeners, I've been so, told. So the... Ouch. The, the, <laughs> hang, hang on. So the, the, the movies the year before this are Godfather Part Two and Chinatown. Right. Right. And so back to back years, you have two sets of movies that are both, t- there's two movies in each set that are incredible movies in their own right. Right. And, and could have easily won. Um, oh, this, this, this is the period in the 70s with the golden age of filmmaking, for sure. Yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. Um, then you have, you have Nashville directed by Robert Altman. He directed uh, MASH and one of Coleman's favorites, Gosford Park, which uh, some people think is a pretentious movie. Uh, <laughs> not, not the listeners, I've been told. Uh, <laughs> the listeners of this podcast have told me that my, my love for, uh, for British manor mysteries is, is not pretentious at all. <laughs> so uh, that that got five nominations and one one win, uh, best original song uh, for Nashville, of course. Uh, some other movies that year: The Return of the Pink Panther, one of Logan's favorites; Three Days of the Condor, Rocky Horror Picture, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, The Stepford Wives, French Connection Two, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Great year, great year, great pick. See you next week. Mike, Matt, and Logan. We're lawyers talking about movies. Good night.